1: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host Jay Taylor and uh, as I like to remind you each and every week I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, and my company Taylor Hard Money Advises in partnership with Chen Lin who publishes what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. And uh, you can go to miningstocks.com. Uh, to buy either of those newsletters, you do need to put your name on a waiting list for Chen, uh, miningstocks.com. Put your name on a waiting list for Chen. You can subscribe to mine anytime, but uh, Chen will be sub- uh, accepting new subscribers at the beginning of the next calendar quarter. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and uh, invite you all to send your questions and comments along to Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Also, follow me on Twitter at JTaylorMedia. I uh, want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Carlisle Goldfields, Aaron Resources, and Cornerstone Capital Resources. Uh, before I introduce the topics of our main guests today, uh, I want to pass along a few remarks from some analysts, market analysts, that I hold in very high esteem because I think they are outlining some potential cataclysmic market changes that we may be uh, on the verge of enduring, uh, and if we are not ready, uh, we could be facing some very significant losses. Uh, First, I'd like to point out a a chart that I showed in my weekly newsletter. Uh, It is a chart that shows the uh, insider holdings. These are U.S. Treasury broker-dealers holdings of U.S. Treasuries. There was a precipitous drop of these insider holdings of U.S. Treasuries with the Lehman Brothers uh... debacle with the uh with the with the financial crisis of 2008 2009 uh and then from then on it's continued to go lower so it was uh, just about 18% of the total treasuries were held at the peak Uh, by these insider broker-dealers. And now it's a mere slightly over 4%. It's a precipitous drop. And the interesting thing is this was on the rise all during the bull market of the Treasuries. It started back in about 1981 or 1982 when uh, interest rates were double digits. So we've had a spectacular bull market in bonds that have lasted some 30 years. Uh, And what this is suggesting to me is that it may well... Uh, be coming to a close. If we are on a, a major change in interest rates, and interest rates have been ha- heading higher, uh, sovereign debt rates have been heading co- considerably higher percentage terms higher, uh, the, starting with the Bund, uh, the German Bund, and now the U.S. Treasuries. And so, the big question is whether or not uh, the central banks are losing control of the uh, of the bond markets. Well, James Turk went on uh, King World News. Uh, A couple of days ago, talking about an impending derivative blow up, most likely related to a a most certain Greek default. There can be no question that the Greeks are going to default. Uh, And uh, referring to the spot silver market, James was suggesting that silver is the most underpriced asset in the world right now. And uh, I might mention that we do expect to talk to James Turk along with uh, Roy Sebeg of uh, Bitgold next week. Both of them should be with me together uh, on this show and we're going to be talking about uh, Bitgold and other related topics. Then there's uh, David Kranzler who publishes a very insightful blog at investmentresearchdynamics.com. I'd encourage you to go there and read his latest uh, piece. It's called A Derivatives Bomb Exploded Within the Last Two Weeks. Now. Uh, he is talking about uh, some some very uh, interesting points uh, that, that lead him to believe that, in fact, uh, something is going on underneath the surface, being hidden from the mainstream, being hidden from uh, the average investors uh, by the elite. First of all, he notes that the S&P and transports have, have seriously diverged uh, since the end of April, with transports heading substantially lower. Transports, of course, measure the heartbeat of the economy. So with a massive decline in stock prices of, of trucks, uh, trucking companies, railroads, uh, delivery services, uh, it indicates that the real economy is not doing very well. Well, indeed, we did see a negative 0.7% GDP in the first quarter. Unusual negative correlation, another thing David pointed out, an ne- unusual negative correlation of 10-year treasuries with transports. If The thing is, if rates were rising as a result of a strong, strong economy, then transport stocks should rise in reflection of that strong economy. But in fact, the 10-year treasury rates are rising rapidly, even as the transports, as we just noted, are uh, are sinking and are doing very poorly. So this suggests to Kranzler, and I, I agree, that the Fed is very well maybe losing control of interest rates. In fact, that uh, there is some panic in the markets, which again would go to this notion uh, that Turk was suggesting of uh, of a derivative problem. Uh, Kranzler also mentions a sudden firing of Deutsche Bank executives. Uh, he he thinks this suggests uh, that some not yet defined derivative blow off blow up could in fact uh, be under the surface right now. Uh, In fact, one of the two executives that just resigned suddenly, one of those two was just promoted a couple of weeks ago and then suddenly fired. Uh, Well, he resigned, but uh, you can read between the lines, uh, probably uh, fired under pressure. Indeed, um, it is interesting to note that it was a German boon that first started to rise precipitously. Its rates started to rise very dramatically. And now, of course, recently, the Treasury markets have uh, risen through some key Uh, resistance levels on interest rates as well. And we hope to talk to, uh, we expect to be talking to Michael Oliver in just a few minutes to see what his charts are telling him uh, about the treasury markets and the boon markets and and some other key markets. A fourth point that David Kranzler mentioned was that there's a hedge fund manager, Paul Singer, of Elliott Manager, uh, whom David said he knew when he, David, was a bond trader, Uh, And he quotes Singer as saying, quote, the best trade in a generation is to short long-term claims on paper, end of quote. In other words, it would be stocks and bonds, that sort of thing. David speculates that Singer is no doubt working off some information uh, that is not yet widely circulated in the markets. Then there was also some information put out by Charles Hugh Smith uh, showing that since uh, quantitative easing was phased out at the end of last year, well, guess what? We've had, as I just mentioned, a negative GDP of 0.7%. And uh, during that time, corporate profits sank 5.9%. That's the biggest drop in corporate profits since uh, 2008, that disastrous year of 2008. He also mentions that the value of manufactured new orders for consumer goods has fallen off the charts uh, and looks exactly like it did prior to the 2008-2009 market crash. And David Jensen also uh, sent a chart along that shows massive inventory buildup um, because sales just simply aren't there. Now, there could be some of that due to uh, excessive oil production, uh, but there's more than that, it would seem also... Uh, David Kranzler also sent along uh, a suggestion that things are starting to, uh, to turn bad and ugly again in the housing market. We'll be uh, revisiting that issue a little bit later. Uh, in the weeks to come. Well, certainly one thing that I've noticed is that countries around the world are running away from the dollar, especially since 2008-2009. The portion of U.S. dollar liquidity that's held by central foreign central banks has fallen very dramatically. In fact, it looks very much like that decline in U.S. treasuries um, overall by the inside dealers. Well, in this case, uh, the central banks have declined uh, their holdings of U.S. dollars very dramatically, such that the U.S. government, or let's say the Treasury or the uh, the Federal Reserve, is holding U.S. debt now in uh, mass. And so it's not surprising that the BRIC countries, the ones that have been deemed rogue nations by our by uh, the United States, countries that don't want to submit to the American economic policies, uh, China, Russia, and the other BRICS. Well, Russia is reportedly now studying ways to exchange its dollar-denominated debt in favor of Chinese yuan-denominated debt. Clearly, uh, the sanctions that are being imposed on Russia is pushing Russia uh, into the arms of China. There can be no doubt about that. And those countries are trying to find ways to protect themselves against the uh, onslaught of American hegemony. So we will see, uh, very interestingly, I think the big question in my mind is, in fact, are, we, uh, are central banks, in fact, losing control of the credit markets and the interest rates, uh, You know, the sovereign debt markets? If that, in fact, is happening, then I think that we will be looking at some very dramatic uh, changes, um, tectonic shifts, if you will, in the markets. And we'll be looking to talk to uh, Michael Oliver in just a, a couple of minutes here after our first break to get his take on some of the latest uh, and some of the most important markets. I have titled today's show... Um, uh, really, having to do with uh, finding ways to protect ourselves from growing wars and inflation. There's certainly uh, the war cycle is certainly well documented. Uh, the United States and the NATO is getting involved in wars all throughout the Middle East. Uh, and so we're going to talk to Richard Mayberry, who has a tremendous background uh, and, I think, uh, tremendous history, a knowledge of history. You know, we talk to a lot of people on this show, Austrian economist people, who see the world through the view of free market economics and Austrian economics. Uh, and uh, But I don't know of anybody... Who is both an Austrian thinker, an Austrian economics thinker, as well as uh, someone who is as well versed in history as Richard Mayberry. So we're going to talk to Richard uh, about some of uh, some of the issues uh, that are really coming up, and and some of the ways that Richard uh, thinks we can best protect ourselves against uh, the onslaught of of, of economic uh, disaster. That that uh, from those for those of us who who see the world through the uh, lens of Austrian economics, we think it's a foregone conclusion. There cannot be any soft landing. The further down this path we go of trying to print our way out of out of uh, trouble, uh, the bigger trouble we dig ourselves into. It's like uh, digging, trying to dig yourself out of quicksand. The more you struggle, the faster you go down. So unfortunately, um, you know, that's a very minority view, of course, otherwise policy might be different. Uh, But uh, we do want to try to understand what is really going on as opposed to what the propaganda artists are trying to convince us is going on. And so we will be talking uh, to Michael Oliver, we're going to go to our first commercial break and when we come back, we'll talk to Michael Oliver about that as well. Uh, Then following Michael, we'll talk to Richard Mayberry. Uh, So I hope you'll uh, stick with us and uh, don't go away. We're going to find out what Michael has to say about the treasury markets, uh, the equity markets, and uh, gold and silver markets, too, hopefully. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network
1: where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake.
3: $200 million. Dollars. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
2: Welcome back to turning hard times into good times. I'm your host Jay Taylor and I'm really ha- glad to have with me again Michael Oliver who is a regular guest on this show and Michael's a regular guest on this show because I really revere his work. He uh, passes it on to me and uh, you know you get a sense after you work with somebody for a while uh, whether or not you really your, your confidence grows or it doesn't and uh, my confidence in wa- watching Michael's work and all he does. Uh, it, has, it has caused me to gain confidence in, in his work. And I think maybe it's the, the approach, the structural approach to markets that he looks at and gaining an early read of the structure of markets. Uh, and I've seen how that's worked out very well. So I'm really glad you could join me again, Michael.
4: It's always great to be here, Jay. And uh, always, you always ask the astute questions. That's
2: that's why I oh, love like being here. <laughs> well, I only I, I ask the questions that are most important to me as an investor, and I presume that they're important to most everybody as investors. And I might say before we go any further, tell our listeners to go to Oliver MSA. That's Mary Sam Albert Oliver dot com. That's uh, Michael's website, and you can gain more information there. We are privilege to have Michael because before he used to be exclusively for the big blue chip institutions that were his clients. and now he is uh, he is making his service available to accredited investors and uh, and I'm very uh, thankful for that. Uh, Michael, you know, one of the markets that I think, and I think you would probably agree, is the most important market probably is the U.S. Treasury market, one of the most important markets anyway. It's certainly, I think I've heard it said four times larger than the equity markets in the U.S. anyway, and uh, and so it's a monster. Now, we've started to see some, some very interesting developments recently. We've seen some dramatic increases in the Bund, the German Bund. We've seen some dramatic increases in the U.S. Treasury rates. In fact, I believe the Treasury rates were up considerably again today. What are you seeing now? Uh, what is your work suggesting? You know, a lot of people just suggesting that this is just another blip. And indeed, if you go back to this long-term bull market in Treasuries, you could see a lot of moves uh, that are as, as significant as this one, the one we've had over the last couple of weeks or so. So do you think this is just a blip, or could it be that this 30-year bull market in bonds, this magnificent bull market, uh, could be coming to an end?
4: Uh, yeah, I go with the latter. Um, I don't have conclusive technical evidence using long-term metrics that say, no, the drop so far in price with the rise in yields has broken the back of multi-decade trend. But I don't think the current decline in price rise in yields has spent itself. I think we're maybe half, two-thirds of the way through it. Uh, And I think by the end of the year, you're going to see higher rates in notes, T-bonds, bonds, and so forth. And now, the, the, the caution, uh, if any of that contagion moves into the equity markets and you get a moment of fear where suddenly the S&P drops 100 points or something very rapidly, you'll have a flight, a flight to quality back into the T-notes, T-bonds, bonds, et cetera. Uh, it'll likely be a counter-trend flight to quality. But that could happen, so be careful if you short those markets. But uh, I think there's more to come uh, in, in the, between now and the end of the year in rise in rates, and it, it will be a disturbing amount. Um, And it certainly has nothing to do with something that the central banks want to happen or are in control of. And I think that's the most important event is not so much the rise in yields as the proof to investors that, my goodness, they don't control events. Uh, Particularly in the market they're most focused on, the ECB is focused on buying French, Italian, Spanish debt and go get a yield chart on the Internet of those uh, bonds, 10-year bonds in those various countries, and you'll see one heck of a move. Uh, clearly one that indicates the ECB is not in control of uh, anything uh, mm. so that that's the issue is the mythology of the CBs uh, now if they lose their veneer in the bond markets which is their market after all uh, what does it mean for equities that have been mm-hmm. boosted you know, the, the Nikkei, the S&P sure. tax. Uh, sure. the, when you lose your religion uh, chaos comes into place and the religion is that they're in control of everything and they're not And I think that's what's most important about this bond slide recently.
2: Right, we're talking about confidence. If the confidence is lost uh, in the gods of the central bank, then we could be looking at uh, some real tectonic shifts, I would think, in in various markets, right?
4: That's what I think is going on, uh, the gold market in particular. I think if you look at the S&P and look at gold over the last six, nine months, even gold for the last couple of years, you could draw a sideways line. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over this past weekend, I've had... I had probably more emails from friends, uh, subscribers, and so forth, panicked about how bad gold looked last Friday, closed to yeah. 167 And uh, my only response was, yes, there might be a new low, although I think the November quote new low that we made last year was sufficient. Uh, it was a panic spike low. I didn't see the technical need for another one, and I still don't see it. And normally in my momentum work, I will see some anticipatory action that says oh you're vulnerable i don't see that right now in gold i see more or less neutral near-term action despite the look of price last week and of course we're up this week so um i think the gold sentiment is uh, a little too depressed for the reality the reality is gold has gone sideways for two years mm-hmm. and, and and this is in an environment where the dollar had one heck of a surge beginning last september and yet mm-hmm. if you look at where gold was last september we're barely changed. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I think I, these are big, like you say, tectonic plates here, uh, yeah, and I think they're positioning.
2: Yeah, well, I know you're you're the first one that I heard uh, equate that geological terminology to right. economics uh, when you outlined uh, about four different of uh, major markets uh, a year ago or so. But you know, Michael, I, I look at one of the things that I've noticed, and this is just you know, I, I haven't really. Uh, i haven 't really documented it uh, statistically, but one of the things uh, that i 've noticed is that you know for the longest time there would be money coming in and out of bonds you, you know if it come out of the stock market, go into bonds come out of the come out of the um, uh, bond market go back into stocks mm-hmm. but what i 've noticed more recently is that uh, when stocks go down sometimes bond the bond markets go down, yields go up. So that is something that seems to be somewhat different to me. I'm wondering if there isn't uh, something going on beneath the surface. Potentially, who knows? If it's beneath the surface, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But there could be a loss of confidence, a a slight loss of confidence in the paper system, although if that is happening, we're certainly not seeing a transfer into gold at this point in time.
4: I think it's an arm wrestling match, and you have to view it that way. In other words, you've got two titans here. You've got the market forces at work i call them the bond vigilantes in the bond market, the gold bulls, and so forth, who are working in one direction, and the CBs, which have been on top of the situation for at least since 2011 or maybe before then, in terms of pricing assets where they want them to be, not where market forces want them to be. And if there's two egregiously priced markets out there, uh, it would be equities, certain equity indexes, in particular, again, the DAX in Germany, not the FTSE in London so much, uh, S&P in the U.S. and uh, its equivalents, and the, the Nikkei. Those have been overly priced by central banks, as have been the yields of their mm-hmm. instruments, which they have gobbled up and now they're the majority buyers in the marketplace. Um, and I think when that comes undone, you've got to watch for the evidence that gold's going to make its shift as well. And it's certainly built a base. If you want to call it sideways for two years a base, I think that's what it's legitimately could be called. I'm looking for the technical signals that say it's emerging out of the base, just like I was looking for the technical signals that the, the German buns were going to break down last April, which, uh, this mm-hmm. this past April, which they did. Uh, the signals from the S&P are now starting we broke yesterday through some intermediate structures that I think are important. I don't see enough consensus yet in the U.S. equity market that says, okay, the S&P is, can be trusted on, it, on its face. I'm looking for the NASDAQ 100 to break certain comparable levels. But we're, we're nearing those points in the equity market. And therefore, if you're looking at gold, you better be watching it carefully because I think if you pop back up in the 1200s again, uh, the threat of another spike to the downside, which is a possibility, I think is off the board. Mm-hmm. In which case, then the only issue for gold is what does it take for it to legitimately break out in terms of momentum factors, to reemerge into a bull trend? Now, if you look at a price chart, that would probably take something well up in the 1300s that would excite you if you looked at a price chart. I'm mm-hmm. arguing 1255 this quarter, or about 1233 next quarter, which is only three weeks away, mm-hmm. are levels that indicate we're coming out of here, upside. So right. I-, I think it's time. Sit, watch, hold your positions, keep your positions light. Be ready to get aggressive.
2: Yeah, I think you were suggesting probably uh, not more than about twenty-five percent at this point in gold and gold shares. I suppose you, you were suggesting, uh, and then as you start to get above some of those levels, you'd probably be more aggressive. I guess, right?
4: That, that's correct. Yeah, in other words, take it yeah. as a, uh, take the breakouts as a ladder. You know, once you go through each hurdle, then you add. Uh-huh. Uh, Uh, Mm -hmm. You want to buy low, but you don't want to buy while the pressure is still on. You want to buy when there's some release of the pressure and you can see the upside occurring. And and that's what I'm attempting to time or the downside occurring in in the case of the equity markets.
2: Yeah, and eventually in the gold markets, too. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't like to think. I don't like to think, but I can't say that. I, I can't I can't let what I like to think get in the way. That's a, that's a big mistake <laughs> that we oftentimes make in, in investors. Uh, in investing, now, let me ask you, do you have some key levels that you'd like to pass along in terms of the 10-year Treasury, which I know is what you're watching in the uh, U.S. sovereign debt?
4: Well, market. I, I think it did a damage last week. Uh, I had 126 area as a, uh, that was a price chart level. In fact, momentum broke down on 127, 128. I'm talking the Treasury, T-note futures, by the way. Uh-huh. The nearby sure. contracts, the June contract. Today it's trading uh, under 126. Uh, even the price charts did damage last week, and price usually is lagged to momentum. Um, I, it, to convert it to yields rather than price, right now you've got the t, uh, t, T-note yields, 10-year yields up around 2.37, I think 2.4. I think uh-huh. you can easily see 2.8, maybe higher this year. Now that's significant, you know, considering where we've been. Um, and and that's damaging in terms of that sense of again who's in control here. Um, and it, and the, the ECB spokesman, I think a week ago, said, "Well, you know, this is not upsetting, uh, baloney." <laughs> he was quite upset. It was palpable when you saw his comments sure. about the the bond crash. So uh, there's some upset there. These guys are are not masters of the universe, and it's starting to come unwound. And when that happens, it's uh, become unwound in all asset categories. And uh, I think gold will be a beneficiary, and I think gold miners will be a better beneficiary.
2: Yeah, so you're still more bullish on the miners than, than the bullion as well. more bullish on the
4: miners, not not day-to-day, but you know, in net on balance. If gold turns into another uptrend, which I expect to happen, uh, the gold miners should beat it.
2: And silver more than gold, I think, probably. Silver still, more than gold. A, uh,
4: same yeah. story there. I right. think silver is poison. Yeah. The numbers on silver, it's gotten above intra-month for the last month or two, but it keeps going back down, not closing the month there. Uh, it's just about $17 on a monthly close looks quite good to me. Uh, we're down around 16 right now. Um, but you know, in two
2: days you'd be back up there again. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard. it's hard to say. So James Turk was was saying that he believes that silver is uh, the most undervalued asset on the planet right now, and and it could be. It's really gotten hit a, a lot harder than gold on the downside, which is typically oh, yes. what happens. One more question for you, Michael, before I let you go. Here was, uh, do you have some uh, some targets in on the S and P that you're that you're looking at that we I should had be this mind- range mindful for of? The year.
4: When we opened the year for trading I had a range for the predicted range for the year because everybody else did it I said me too so I put out a report called me too and I, <laughs> I had the S&P chart simply priced and I put a rectangle where the high of the year would be and the low of the year and the high of the year was 21.30 now last year we closed at 20.59 so I projected we went up another 70 points okay the high so far has been 20.30 and change on a peak close so we closed slightly above that and now, of course, we're 20.85, so we're mm-hmm. 50 points off that high, 21.30. Uh, the low for the year, I think, should be in the 1600s and is likely to be there. Wow, uh, okay. Now, I'm not arguing that that's the low of a bear market. I'm arguing that for this year, for that this is a likely area of support for this year.
2: All right. Well, those are some some things to keep our eyes on, and again, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show and, and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Again, I would uh, tell uh, suggest to people uh, that they go to olivermsa.com. Oliver M is in Mary, S is in Sam, A is in Albert. Olivermsa. That stands for uh, that stands for momentum structural. Uh, what's the A? A momentum structural analysis. Stru- <laughs> analysis. Analysis, of course, yeah, of yeah. course. Well, okay. it, and, that, and, and, you know, looking at things from a structural basis, uh, that makes sense. And you draw some neat lines that show the areas that, that need to be uh, exceeded or broken down on the downside before you get. And what I've noticed is, uh, I mean, one of the outstanding ones was your call on Chinese stocks. I mean, it was just magnificent. But I've noticed others that have worked out very well since then as well. So I want to thank you very much, Michael, for being with us and look forward to doing it again, hopefully next week again. And thank you, Jay. Thank you so much. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be back with Richard Mayberry. Always, Richard has some very fascinating things to say. Uh, He is a a historian and he is a free market uh, thinker, uh, an Austrian advocate of Austrian economics Uh, And uh, combining the two, I think he has some of the best information uh, and best ideas about how to survive and even thrive in, uh, in what is likely to be a very rough ride ahead for Americans. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Richard Mayberry.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TSXV and CTNXF on the OTC.
3: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Richard Mayberry. He is the publisher of U.S. and World Early Warning Report uh, for investors. It's, it's an excellent newsletter. It's one that I've been subscribing to for many years now, Early earlywarningreport.com. Uh, early Go there to sign up for Richard's newsletter. It's a very reasonably priced newsletter, and also... Uh, An excellent publication, The End of Washington as Superpower, a special report that you can purchase uh, there as well. And uh, as I was mentioning in my introductory remarks, Richard is really uh, unique in that he brings probably, well, I guess as anybody I know, I don't know of anybody that knows history, Uh, including all of the history teachers I've ever had in in college and high school. I don't know of anybody that knows history better than Richard does. Uh, Real history. I mean, actual factual history, not uh, contrived stuff from the state, but real actual history. Uh, And the combination of that, along with an understanding of how human beings really act and what they really need to live in peace with one another, Uh, You know, makes Richard very unique and I think his newsletter is is so worth the price and I would just suggest to uh, all of my listeners that you might want to consider subscribing to Early Warning Report. Go there earlywarningreport.com. Thanks for joining me again Richard.
5: Well thank you Jay And, and incidentally while we're talking about newsletters I was reading one of yours the other day and it occurred to me that this is the best written newsletter I've ever seen. You You do research that is so much more in-depth than anything I've run across before. And I I would like to, you know, just for the audience to know that, I've been writing newsletters and reading them for something like 40 years, and I've never come across the depth like your newsletter has. And I'm glad to say I I know you.
2: Well, that's very very kind of you, Richard. Now, maybe the folks will think that I scratch your back, you scratch mine, but that's... (laughs) I don't think we've, we, I, I mean, I'm flattered no. to hear that. What I know, I do work hard. That's true. Uh, but, you know, everybody has their own talents and their and what they can give to, you know, what they are able to give. Because we're all unique human beings. I mean, um, fascist states, uh, statist governments don't want us to be unique. They want to take that uniqueness away from us and make us all look alike and smell alike and talk alike and think alike. Uh, mm-hmm. But as unique human beings, we each have something different to offer and uh, and so I do my best that's true and, and work hard I'm more focused on the mining companies uh, and that has not been a good strategy over the last uh, f- uh, you know four or five years because mm-hmm. gold mining companies haven't done that well but what you do in your letter is a very balanced approach to investing uh, and uh, you know I, I would have done much better I'll tell my listeners right now I would have done much better in your portfolio over the last five years than I have with mine so <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll let people know so, uh, you know, that, that okay. that's not to say we're not ready for a bull market in gold stocks. I think we're getting close. And yeah. when that day comes, uh, you know, maybe I'll do, I, I know I'll do a lot better. But in any event, well, let's talk about uh, Richard Mayberry yeah. now and stop about this uh, nonsense from the host. Uh, <laughs> the, you, know, <laughs> you know, you, you had, um, uh, you know, you, you were, I believe, in the military during the Vietnam days. Is that right? That's right. I was not
5: stationed in Vietnam. I flew in and out. I was stationed in Central America and was involved in the various wars that Washington was participating in then. Uh, You may remember Che Guevara and other names from that era. So I was in that part of the conflict, uh, and uh, most Americans don't even know it existed.
2: Well, um, you know, what America participated in... uh, to what extent do you think we might have sort of stimulated those wars? Oh, maybe close to 100%. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, You know, it, we've had... Uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I
5: mean, uh, the U.S. government um, just sticks its nose into the business of everybody in the world, and it's been doing it for more than 100 years. And um, Central America and South America were the first places, um, well, not the, the very first, but but the favorite place that Washington meddled um, for many many decades, um, and uh, you know I was I was part of that, um, and it was a shameful thing. I I really am ashamed of having been involved in it. But I was young, and I didn't know anything about real politics at that time, so I just did what they told me to do, and and those were terrible things that I did.
2: Well, the point is though that you learn from it, and I think you know most people probably turn a blind eye to it and, and uh, or put some sort of a spin on it and try to make believe that uh, or they, or they drink the kool aid that is given to them by their government that tells us that, you know that we 're doing that you're, that you 're uh, fighting and, and defending America or providing some sort of uh, you know, higher calling, right, uh, the, the Constitutional. Yeah. And I guess, you know, if people really understood that our government doesn't follow the Constitution anymore, then that would be nonsense. But in any event, let's get on to some of the topics. I wanted to ask you about Vietnam. We've mm-hmm. been talking to James Perloff. He's uh, been a fairly regular guest on this show, and he's, he's written a very excellent book. But he was pointing out that with respect to the Vietnam War, uh, that the that the president, uh, the president uh, Lyndon Johnson, or the uh, Secretary of Defense, whoever was calling the shots, were not really allowing our troops, uh, our soldiers, to win. In fact, he talked about the Ho Chi Minh Trail, where uh, we weren't allowed to bomb anybody, any of the Viet Cong that were off to the side of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. He said they would uh, they would know that the bombers were coming from, uh, you know, from the radar, and they would just scatter off to the sides, but the command was not to try to kill them when they went off to the side. Likewise, they were... Uh, the MiG fighters, uh, according to James, we were not allowed to shoot the MiGs if they were on the ground. Only if they started scrambling in the air were we allowed to fire at them. Well, I mean, what sense does that make? And why would we, I don't know, first of all, if that rings true to you, if what James was saying makes sense to you uh, about Vietnam. But why, if, if it does, then why would we get involved in a war and then design it so that we couldn't win it?
5: Um, well, um Regarding, regarding the MiGs, that specific case I don't know anything about, but I'm, I'm sure it probably is true because there were numerous cases of that sort of insanity going on where the American okay. troops... Would uh, be told to take a hill, let's say, and they'd take a bunch of casualties. A lot of guys would get killed. They'd take the hill, and three days later they'd be told to abandon the hill and go somewhere else. And the enemy would then just take over the hill again. There are lots of things like that. And, um, you know, what was some big part of what was going on was that. McNamara and a lot of other people who thought they were more brilliant than the rest of the world um, thought that the way you win that kind of a war, a guerrilla war, is just by hurting the enemy and showing him that he can't win, and and that that was the overall strategy is always uh-huh. show the enemy he can't win, and then he will eventually give up. Uh-huh. Well, um, the. The thing that actually happened is the enemy realized that they had a lot more sticking power than Washington did. And if they just kept fighting, Washington would eventually figure out that it couldn't win uh-huh. and it would go away, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. The, the, the funny thing is, what most Americans don't know, is that the U.S. won every major battle over there. Mm. There were a few small ones they didn't but they won every major battle, but they still lost the war
2: oh.
5: uh, because the enemy just lasted longer. <laughs> and, and this is, goes back to, to the main thing that's wrong with all of American foreign policy is that those, those fools in Washington do not try to see things from the other side's point of view. They always think they're smarter and they know how to win and they go into these things without knowing the history of those other people. Well, the Vietnamese have been fighting off the Chinese and other people for many centuries, and Mm -hmm. they were really, really good at guerrilla war, and what they were really the best at was perseverance. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's probably never been an army in the history of the world that had the perseverance of the Vietnamese, and um they just hung in there longer than Washington did, and anybody who knew their history knew that was what was going to happen, but Washington wouldn't pay attention. They believed that their superior firepower would win the war for them as long as they kept showing the other side that that the other side couldn't win, mm-hmm. and as they say they won the u s won every major battle but that's it didn't incredible he could.
2: That's incredible. Well, you know, of course, we had during the Vietnam War. We had the uh, the college uh, protests. We had when we had a draft. Richard, you know, I'm wondering mm-hmm. uh, if maybe one of the wisest things that our military industrial complex did was drop the draft because now, uh, you know, people don't care so much. I, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think people don't care so much, uh, and and also you have a, a horrible economy. So what are people going to do? They go off to the military. It's the only place they can find a job. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I'm wondering. To what extent though we might have lasted longer if if we hadn't had a draft during uh during Vietnam
5: yeah, um, they would have lasted longer. I think there's no doubt about that, um, but nevertheless, I don't think Americans will ever have the kind of patience that the Vietnamese did, and mm-hmm. probably still do um, when you when you study that war and you look at the strategies strategies and tactics, especially the tunneling that the enemy did, I mean my God. Tunnels would go on for miles and miles uh-huh. underground, and uh-huh. clearing those tunnels out was pretty close to impossible. And it, those p- tunnels had been built— for, <laughs> who knows how many years they'd been building those tunnels? It's that sort of a thing. I mean, these people. Well, another, and, and this brings up another point that Americans don't seem to understand: is when America invades somebody else's country and goes to war there, the Americans are the invaders. Yes. <laughs> well, how would you feel about it if somebody came into our country and told us, we're going to clean this place up for you, we're going to make it better, um, you're just going to have to follow our rules for a while, but things will be wonderful. Americans would not buy that. They would fight. You, would, you better believe you would, it. You would see these invaders as a threat to your home and family, and you would fight like a tiger. And that's what happens all over the world when U.S. troops go in someplace they are invaders, and those people feel that their families are threatened, and they fight like tigers to throw us out. And that's what m- the main part of the Vietnam War was about, was simply the Vietnamese attempt to throw the invaders out.
2: Yeah. Well, we're everywhere now. We're we're uh, probably more, uh, we probably expanded our military presence even more since Vietnam. It, it's not as if... Uh, it's not as if that was a setback for the Anglo-American or, let's say, for the uh, for Washington. Um, but you point out in your recent letter, the one that just came out, uh, that as insane as the Vietnam War was, uh, you, you noted that what we're doing now in the Middle East is even crazier. Would you care to elaborate a little bit on that? What what, what yeah, are we doing um, there now?
5: The fundamental thing that's going on in the Middle East is, is that that area is returning to its natural condition, which is warfare. Mm -hmm. Uh, These people have been fighting each other, tribe against tribe, ethnic group against ethnic group, religion against religion. They've been fighting each other for a minimum of 13 centuries. Uh, The the big overriding battle in all of this is the Sunnis versus the Shiites. That's been going on for 13 centuries, and the U.S. is in it now (laughs) on both sides. They take Washington takes sides with various groups on both sides of that ancient battle. So you have, you know, in one uh, battlefield, you might have the 82nd Airborne uh, trying to kill Sunnis. And on some other battlefield, the 101st Airborne is trying to kill Shiites. (laughs)
4: Um,
5: So um, they're they're fighting on both sides of this war. And it's just, it's just more insane even than Vietnam
2: was. <laughs> uh, well, it it's it seems to be Richard, but I mean maybe it's not insane for the guys that are making the military, uh, the, the the all of the military hardware.
5: Well, yeah, I
2: I've heard that argument before. Um, it, and what drives it, it? I mean, what's driving the craziness? I'm I'm that's oh, what I'm I, I asking. Think
5: the thrill of using power is what huh. drives all wars. I don't think there's an exception, um, and especially in the U.S. case for the last 200 years. The, the U.S. politician is a politician like anybody else in the world. He wants power. He wants to uh, reorder the world according to his plan, and uh, he wants that political power to do it. Political power is the privilege of using brute force on persons who haven't harmed anyone. That's the fundamental overriding um, driving force in in all of politics, is this desire for the privilege of using brute force on people who haven't harmed anyone so that you can reorder the world in some way. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the U.S. politician is no different than politicians everywhere. He's got that desire for that power, and when he gets it, he wants to use it on somebody. And the most satisfying use of power is military force. That's the ultimate in in political power. And I think they just get suckered into one war after another by their own desire for power. They cannot resist the temptation. And the American founders understood this. There's all kinds of of writing from that time where people like James Madison and and, uh, John Jay Uh, would write about how the corrupting effects of power and how power destroys a person's judgment. Uh, Political power corrupts. Everybody knows that line. It's a a cliché, but the reason it became a cliché is because it's true. Political power corrupts the morals and the judgment. And to me, that is what drives the U.S. involvement in, in every war that's ever happened except... The American Revolution. And if mm-hmm. if I had it to do over again, knowing what I know about all of America's wars, uh, the only one I would volunteer for is the revolution in 1776. Mm-hmm. The rest of them were all put up jobs where some U.S. politician wanted the glory of war, and he found excuses to get into it.
2: Yeah. Every one of in, them, including... Yeah, indeed, and, and that matches what James Perloff has been telling us about the last six wars there have been you know, false flags that were used in one way or another to rally the American people behind those wars. So it's uh, Mm -hmm. uh, it's incredible. But, you know, speaking of power, this is a question I hadn't thought about asking you, Richard, but, you know, this love of power, this thirst for power... Uh, there something I read, and you can tell me whether you whether you've read the same thing or whether you whether you believe it's true. Uh, but there, reportedly, there were some generals that didn't think it was necessary that we had to use the the, the nuclear nuclear weapons against Japan to finish off the Second World War. But in fact, uh, we used it. At least one one idea was that we used it to let everybody know who was in charge going forward uh, into the future. Does that sound far fetched to you?
5: Well, yeah, that's uh, in my book about World War
2: II. Oh, maybe um, that's where I read it. That's probably.
5: Where I read it. <laughs> well, if you read it there, then you know I agree with it. Uh, well, okay, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, you know, I don't know about generals. I can't speak off the top of my head about what any generals thought about using the nuclear weapons. But I know that the Navy generally thought it was insane. Uh, There was absolutely no military reason to use those those bombs because Japan is an island nation with almost no natural resources to speak of, and Japan was completely cut off from the rest of the world by 1945. It was sealed off like the whole country had put in a (laughs) vacuum-packed coffee can and um, had been uh, just just completely cut off from the rest of the world, and it was headed back for the Stone Age because they had no way to really uh, support a modern economy. The Navy had them entirely surrounded, and their their air force was pretty much wiped out too, and their their navy had been sunk so. Uh, The Navy and the U.S. Navy, you know, are saying, why did you do this? There was no reason for any more fighting. We could just sit here and wait until they either gave up or actually did return to the Stone Age. But uh, Washington went ahead and did it anyhow. And I am convinced the reason was that they were trying to intimidate the Russians. Um, They were uh, not on good terms with Stalin. And I think that the, the use of the bombs, those two bombs in Japan, were demonstrations of the fact that the U.S. politicians were willing to wipe out cities in order to impose their rule on the world. And that it was, they were saying to Stalin, you know, you better clean up your act and do, do uh, things the way we want or else we've got mm. these bombs. Well, what happened was that the Russian people were rising up at that time against Stalin the way Mm. they did in the early 90s. They were doing that in 1945. They were starting to overthrow Stalin, and when the U.S. used those bombs, that rebellion just went away because, well, it not completely, but... It lasted another five years, and it was gone. And what happened was, <clears throat> as far as we can tell, the Russian people said, Oh, my God, the only thing that's protecting us against those bombs is Stalin. So we can't get rid of Stalin anymore. We no. need him now to protect us against the Americans. Wow! And that's what happened, uh, that Stalin was actually held in power by those bombs. It was exactly the opposite reaction that Washington was trying to achieve.
2: Well, that's 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 fascinating. Uh, oh, so much more to talk about. My engineer is telling me we only have four minutes. I can't believe it. But uh, <laughs> you know, Richard, we are uh, we are bankrupting. It seems to me. I mean, we're we're bankrupting our country. I mean, we talked a, a little bit earlier. Uh, on this show today about, uh, about the debt markets that seemingly may be coming out of control of the, of the central banks, both the, the German Bund as well as the U.S. Treasury now breaking through some key levels. Michael Oliver suggesting a little earlier on this show today that uh, he, he thinks that, uh, that the long 30-year bull market in, uh, in, uh, in the bond market, and the U.S. Treasury market, is probably over uh, and that we could be on to some very rocky times ahead. Uh, how, do you, how do you see it?
5: Yeah, I, I think uh, Rocky times Ahead is a good way of describing it. Um, you and I have talked about this a lot. Um, there's, there is so much, I mean, for one reason, this is one reason why. There is so much malinvestment. When the, when the federal government um, injects money into the economy, when it changes taxes, when it does any number of things that it does, It rearranges the flows of money in the country. In fact, that's the main reason they do these things, is to rearrange the flows of money. So businesses that were dependent on a given flow of money suddenly find the flow dries up. The money went somewhere else, and these businesses go under. And those businesses that are dependent on these artificial flows of money from Washington are not investment. They are malinvestment. They are mistakes that government causes by manipulating flows of money. And every time the government changes the flows, then some of this malinvestment comes to light because these companies now are going under. And that's essentially what we're up against. I believe the amount of malinvestment out in the United States today is, is not calculable. It is so huge And it's so difficult to recognize. We don't really know how much is there. But we do know the government has been changing flows of money routinely year after year for so many decades that the level of malinvestment must be just absolutely incredible. And when finally this whole um, Ponzi scheme that they're running in Washington falls apart, then all that malinvestment is going to come to the surface at once, and you got a depression, and who knows how they're going to react to that, probably. Okay, by- Richard,
2: Richard uh, unfortunately we're out of time, but tell me, uh, our listeners, uh, uh, I wanted to ask you about velocity, money, velocity. The notion is that when money starts to turn over, we're going to head, head into some very highly, high inflationary days, probably when the dollar loses its value. What are you telling your listeners, what are you telling your subscribers they should own? Just real quickly, what sort of things should they own? Besides defense stocks, we talked about that last, last time.
5: Yeah, right. Well, um, I was listening to your previous show right before me, and I I agree with everything you guys said. I think that gold and silver, platinum, palladium, those are the key things to own, and I think that um, we will look back on these days and regard them as dirt cheap right now. Uh, these, this is one of the great buying opportunities in history, I think. All right, I think agree- you're right.
2: I, I was just tell my right. listeners go to uh, Richard's newsletter. There's so much more we didn't get to talk about the powder, the Baltic powder quake, uh, dollar velocity, huge numbers of very important topics. Uh, go to Richard's newsletter, please, and subscribe. We're out of time. I'm sorry, Richard. We'll have you back again sometime real soon. Thank you very much okay. for being with us today. Well, folks, next week we're going to be talking to Roy Sebeg uh and James Turk. Uh Roy Sebig is now the CEO of Bitgold, a very interesting topic. And uh, they just acquired James Turk's gold money. Uh, You know, using modern technology, uh, storing your value in gold, and then using uh, Bitcoin, as it were, as a transportation, or a means of payment mode. Uh, That's what we'll be talking to Roy Sebig about and James Turk. And that is a public company, very interesting story. Uh, So I hope to see you again next week. That's all the time we have. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
1: where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated, and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in minor Reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake.
3: million.